and Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my good friend Pete Spiliakos for a conversation in our postmodern conservative series. Today we're talking about the epidemic, what it says about freedom, what it says about political authority, how are elites reacting, and how are we, the people, reacting. Why has this been such a catastrophe when there was already news in early January that people should have been paying attention to? Why are we not united now at the end of March? Why don't we know what is going to happen in April and May? First of all, Pete, thanks for joining me. I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. I have been following you on Twitter and reading you in National Review, and I am glad to be doing this again. And I needed somebody who will bring the wrath, not just analysis, and you're my man. Thanks a lot for joining me again. How's it going, Titus? Glad to talk to you. Um, I do have a lot of wrath, a lot of wrath. But before we start with wrath, we ought to start with understanding. Western societies are dealing up with a problem that they haven't had to deal with for a very long time. Nobody who's active in public life has any living memory of what this kind of situation is, which means that everybody involved is stumbling. Some doing better than others, able to learn from the past and from the experiences of other countries better than others. But everybody involved in Western societies, both in the public and in political affairs, is not acting from firsthand experience. And almost all of them are not acting from deep thought on the subject. It's an unfamiliar problem involving procedures that are unfamiliar, exercise of powers that are unfamiliar, calling upon widespread uses of resources that don't exist because, once again, people did not expect this problem to be as big as it is here. So one of the reasons for why performance is so suboptimal, some places terrible, is because this is a new problem. Not necessarily a new problem for the world, but a new problem in the experience of the people involved, at both the popular level and at the governmental level, which is one of the reasons why the East Asian democracies in Singapore are handling it so much better. Because through SARS and through MERS, they had experiences of dealing with these problems. Both the government officials did, which meant the public health authorities were better prepared. It meant their industrial bases were better prepared because they had masks. It meant the public was more prepared about what to expect and what to do, both simply in terms of just obeying what the government tells them, but also wearing masks in public, maintaining some semblance of social distancing in these very densely populated countries. So one of the reasons we're doing so relatively badly and they're doing so relatively well is because, well, they've learned and they're acting on it, whereas this is the first time around for us. So once again, some people are going to handle it better. Some people are doing terribly. But if it doesn't seem like we're doing as well as South Korea or Japan or Singapore, it's because they've prepared for a very long time from the level of the citizen all the way to the senior government leadership through the public health authorities for just this kind of problem. And we haven't. They're not doing better because they're superior somehow. The real annoying commentary on it is, well, these countries are hierarchical. These countries are used to listening to their leaders. These countries are disciplined. The people are emotionally distant. Their countries are doing so well because they've dealt with this problem within the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, now that I've been quarantined, I have been uh, binging on Japanese pro wrestling, of all things. But... <laughs> But here's the thing. There's something you don't see in crowds in the 60s and 70s that you do see from the last 15 or 20 years. Masks. In the last 20 years, in the crowd among Japanese pro wrestling, there'd be quite a few people masked. Those people aren't feeling all that great, but they still want to go to the matches. And they didn't want to uh, spread their germs, so they wore masks. In the 60s or 70s, you don't see any of that. Now, did Japan suddenly become more Asian in the last 20 or 30 years and people started wearing masks? I mean, that wasn't what happened. What happened was they had multiple experiences of respiratory diseases hitting Japan really hard, and people learned protocols. The government learned protocols, and so did the public. 
so that, you know, when you're not feeling well or there are reports of a respiratory disease coming around, you mask up. Once again, that's just another example of how they're ready, but they're not ready because of some ancient Asian secret. They're ready because they had recent experiences within living memory. Now, good for them. I'm glad they did. But let's start with data experience. And the same thing works on, like, lockdowns. America's governors, who are primarily responsible for that sort of stuff, are having real trouble when to lock down. On the other hand, not that long ago, during the terrorist attack in Boston, there was one or two terrorists loose in the city, and they locked down the metropolitan area. And the public wasn't out there grilling. You have politicians telling the people to stay indoors, and people are disobeying. Unless public authority is being exercised, the people just don't listen, because they don't take it seriously. But you had a couple of guys with guns. Now, prepare to be shocked. Boston has a lot of guys with guns every day. You had a couple of guys with guns running around on the loose. And the mayor said, lock down the city. And people locked down the city because, I mean, Boston had experienced terrorism. But we'd seen September 11th. On a social level, we had experienced that terrorism was real, that it wasn't a joke, and that it had to be dealt with. Now, two scumbags with guns and, you know, pressure cooker bombs are less dangerous than this disease. However, people took it seriously because both within their imaginations and with their experience with recent events, they knew that it's serious. Even though they might not know anybody who had killed, they knew this thing could kill. Whereas with this disease, you have a lot of people for whom it's not real at all. And it's going to take a while for people to make it real. That's one of the reasons why I think the public response and the populace has been so uneven. It's not real to them. If you had terrorists kill 50 people within the city in a weekend, and the terrorists were on the loose, you'd lock down the city. But with this disease, it took a lot more convincing to lock it down. And once again, some people have done better. Mike DeWine in Ohio has done very well. Bill de Blasio in New York City has done wretchedly. But at the same time, if you average out the response, it kind of looks like what you would expect, especially when you have a con man as president. So that's just where we are. Yeah, I think you're right. We have underestimated to a great degree what it means for an event to be shocking, what it means for a kind of problem to be simply out of our experience, not something that is new to America as such, something that is new to us, something that is new to our politicians, something that is new to the culture and the discourse so that we have some kind of handle on it. And we don't. Events like wars, like plagues, various kinds of catastrophes. What if it's not a regular enough hurricane? What if it's not a regular enough flooding event? Well, if it's irregular and without the experience, what are you going to do? On the other hand, if you wait to acquire experience, it will be excruciating. It will be horrifying, maybe. You have to both be prepared and to realize that this is not the sort of thing that you know how to prepare for. You'd have to learn from the experience of others, indeed. And I think you're right. When I was a kid in Europe, you did not see tourists with masks. But in the last 20 years or so, wherever you see Asian tourists especially... They're often wearing masks. There's no particular reason for it, but they're doing it. And I think partly it's, as you said, experience with outbreaks in the last 20 years like SARS. And partly I think it has to do with the horrifying pollution in places like South Korea that also seems to have moved people to move masks. I have friends in South Korea who do that and talk about it. And so they had, in certain ways, better habits. But I think it's also something else. I mean, in these places, it's a matter of social morality or of public morality. Wearing a mask shows that you're part of the people and doing your part. They are less individualistic than Americans or the kind of European countries I know well enough to speak about. Different populations with different habits, with different cultures, tend to do better or worse in different kinds of crises. 
And one other example I would want to add to your list is Hong Kong, where the government under Chinese control has been utterly incompetent and unwilling to act. But the people from regular Hong Kong people to some of the people very involved in the protests and who still have the social infrastructure of digital communication have been on the matter obsessing over social distancing, insisting publicly on wearing masks and on installing all sorts of measurements at the popular level without authority in order to make sure that people do not spread the disease. And first of all, of course, that they take it seriously enough to be scared. Fear is the beginning of wisdom in all such matters. You see, again, something that has to do with the habit of the people. That is lacking among us. We have to deal with it in a different way. We're facing the same kind of crisis, but we're facing it with different resources and with different ideas, with different habits, with different beliefs. So we have to look, as you said, at the fact that people aren't used to taking this seriously and the politicians, they're not used to speaking seriously either. To get an American counterexample to show what it's like in America, I was just reading this piece in the Texas Monthly about the HEB stores retailers. These people had an amazing plan in place. The various officers of the corporation and also all sorts of other people involved from people volunteering to do checkout work to people doing transportation work. Now, who does transportation for them? People who used to do beer transportation. That business is out of business temporarily, but the logistics is still there, so you can use it. And the officers of the corporations are talking about this, why they installed the plan. What happens in case of crisis? How they started monitoring and thinking about what are you going to be running out of? What do you want to restock? Pay people more for hazard and cut down hours to have more stocking time. All sorts of logistic issues at which Americans are great. And the corporate structure on the one hand, but on the other hand, the communities of Texans in the various cities where there are stores reacted to this wonderfully. This was almost no authority, except, of course, for the people working for the corporation. But they organized wonderfully because they were worried about this stuff. And how did they know to be worried? It's because of the supply chains. The market is not just people spending money buying and selling stuff. It's transportation. It's talking to people. It's hearing from people in East Asia that there are real problems. And the more they heard about it, the more seriously they took it and they prepared in advance. This is, I think, one of those, you know, ready to shoot, as it were, movies American ingenuity in logistics, in being practical, in thinking ahead of time to some extent and acting when it's necessary. Of course, compared to that, what we have politically, publicly is a goddamn catastrophe. Trump did one great thing, which is shutting down travel. And even that, I mean, you'd have wanted him to speak way more clearly about how dangerous this stuff is and that everybody had better stop yapping the mouth about this stuff. People will die. But in every other thing, we feel best when we listen to Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks, not him. And that's a problem. I'm glad, on the other hand, that the people, you know, approval ratings are okay, because if they weren't, we would be in deep social trouble. It would spread all sorts of bad problems. But it's a collapse of leadership. And of course, most leadership will be exercised, as you said, at the level of governors, at the state levels, and in some cases, at township level, in the cases of the metropolises, at least. And it is indeed catastrophic. Partly it was politics. It was, do you love or hate Trump? Who are you going to vote for? Partly it was other things associated with politics. Like, if you're scared about this whole thing coming out of China, does that make you racist? If you want to prove that you're not racist because you have absolutely no problems with maintaining travel from China to New York City or what have you, does that mean you're betraying your public duties? 
It's been a massive catastrophe in part because instead of having any kind of political clarity from the president on down and any possible consensus about the issues, lockdown, what are you going to do about the economy? What are you going to do about people's lives? Instead of that, we have had an ongoing circus and it seems like maybe now people are taking it seriously at the level of public discourse, not just politicians, but of course also the press at the various levels from the New York Times down to Reddit. But so far, elites have looked awful. In many cases, popular response has been less insane and damn prescient in some cases because people were scared enough to take the problem seriously, not trying to show that they're so smart, they're not worried. Well, at first, you had, as you said, among like relatively smarty pants liberal media, it was cool to say it's just a fool. And if you're worrying about this, it's racist. You had this, and you still have among some public authorities, or obviously lying. Though the sad thing is, I'm pretty sure the journalists weren't lying. There were two lines. One, you shouldn't wear the mask because it doesn't really help if you're not sick. And two, you should save them for people within vulnerable populations. That is an obvious self-contradictory message. Now, I assume that the public authorities who are issuing that message know they're lying and they're trying to save a limited supply of masks. I'm pretty sure that our enumerated journalist class actually took that at face value and just used it as an excuse to urinate on anybody who wanted to wear a mask so they could make themselves feel smarter. That's... That's one problem. You had a journalistic class that bought into, this is not going to be that big, worry about the flu. You also had a president who initially treated it, except for the very important exception of the travel ban. He initially treated it as more of a public relations problem than a problem problem, where he basically says, we got to 15 cases, eventually, we'll soon we'll have it down to zero. I don't know that he knew that was false. I'm not even sure he knew enough to lie in that case. But his first response was to try to minimize the problem and hope that the impact would be very limited. On the other hand, you also had his liberal critics, to the extent they noticed it, said that China travel ban was a very bad idea. This is xenophobic, where obviously it limited transmission, however much, within the United States for quite a while. So you have a situation where the politics is so toxic that banning travel from a plague hit area suddenly became a partisan issue. It's disgusting, but at the same time, habits don't change very quickly. Trump pulls out a big pen. People see a big pen, and liberal critics will write a story about how big pens are bad for America and how, you know, their cousin accidentally poked their eye with a big pen and caused brain damage. And Fox will write a story about how big is a huge American story, and people will want to kill each other over big pens. Only instead of it being about whether big pens are good or bad, who cares? It's about what policy should be relating to a plague. And it does highlight how worthless these people are. Their jobs are to be unserious, are to inflame. Their jobs are to poison. And not only that, to do so in the context of self-satisfaction, where every story is partly to divide their citizens over nothing to make themselves feel better about their terrible career choices. (laughs) Yeah, this is a grim moment, but an important realization The ease with which people take something that is now scaring the daylights out of 100 million people or so, and they treated it as though it was just another day at the office, fairly comfortably screaming the same things that have been screamed in America since 2016. That is sobering. It's partly human nature, and it's partly how screwed up we are these days. A disunited country will not turn on a dime. People cannot give up the habit of saying, I'm so much smarter than you and you're also evil. We had these two camps, some people saying, you know, it's the end of the world, we have to save lives from the plague eventually. And the other people saying, well, you can't destroy the economy and have us all starve because you're so panicky. 
at that point, partisanship got to its natural American way, where some people are saying life as such is the sacred thing or is the thing that matters. And the other people saying actually life with a certain virtue, life with certain qualities is what matters. And so some are willing to accept risks and some are willing to accept no risks. And this is not an intelligent problem to have. This is not the way we will have national policy work out, much less coordinate local policy in so many different states and cities. But at least this is recognizably American. But it took us a while to get here, almost two months really, and that is a very good measurement of how blind partisanship is, how stupid people are who pretend to be very moral and very intelligent, and that that pretense is making them worse. People did not need to behave quite in this way. They are not that stupid, they are not that blind, but they have grown comfortable to act that stupid and to act that blind, because it seems on the one hand there are no consequences if you do, in fact your job just goes on, it's nice. And on the other hand, they feel powerless to act actually. This is a press that is too aware that it has lost its influence, that it's losing ratings, money and influence and prestige, and it's making people irresponsible. Maybe reality will wake people up, maybe May will be better or April, but I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it just yet. This is a national problem that's making the plague worse, and it's not actually reasonable to expect that we will be behaving in a decent, reasonable way. It would be better were we reasonable, but it'll take a while to get people scared enough to realize that orchestrating press briefings like Trump is doing with a view to the stock market isn't that smart because you have no idea what the hell is going to happen next week. And orchestrating press briefings with a view like the media is doing to showing that Trump is incompetent or petty is very, very dangerous and stupid. Do not make things worse if you think that the president is vaguely incompetent. Why would you do that? That should be worrying you. That should be making you think, oh my God, let us not make this worse. But instead, it eggs people on. The more they despise the president, the worse they want things to be. It's insane, but in a way it's typical because the first thing people reach for is a kind of comfort, looking for somebody to blame as though that makes the problem go away. But of course, assigning blame and surviving the problem are very different things. One of the annoying things Trump used to do, the stock market would go up and down. And when the stock market would go up, he would send a tweet saying, hey, the stock market is looking good. But then the next day it would go down. And when he got it was when he went to a press briefing and they asked him about the stock market. And he said, the stock market will recover when we beat this thing, which is exactly right. And he finally got it. But him being him, he can't exactly stick to that bad economic news or some criticism from a source that he trusts gets to him and he has to go in the other direction because ultimately he's not a serious person. The only good news is he has serious people advising him and he might not get the credit for what he does right, but he'll damn sure get the blame for whatever goes wrong. So you might as well get it right. I mean, that increases your chances. So on that level, hopefully the people who have good sense will be able to get through it, but he'll always have instincts pushing him to make the wrong, short-sighted decision because in his heart of hearts, he's much closer to the mayor of Jaws than he is to anybody else, except that the mayor of Jaws is probably, on all things considered, a slightly better person. But at the same time, hopefully his interests align with good policy enough for long enough to let the people who do know what they're talking about handle the situation. That's got to be the hope. And one of the most horrible things about the situation is that public opinion is basically behind the right thing. 
if you look at opinion polls, somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of the public is in favor of the lockdowns. These policies are much more popular than himself or anything he's done or anything else he might ever do. As the death rate ramps up, I don't know that it's going to become less popular in the medium term in the next two to three weeks. But at the same time, there is a faction of the right, I think from genuine conviction, who wants him to push towards ending social distancing, reopening the economy, retail, public spaces. I mean, somebody said, you know, what about the hot dog vendors at the basketball games? I mean, one birdie turned into hell on earth because they had a Champions League soccer game and that was a super spreading event. And this guy, I don't know, I think it's Jesse Kelly saying, you know, what about the hot dog vendors where you might have thousands and thousands of people get it? Giving him credit, I actually think there's a lot of people on the right, well, not a lot of people, but a significant faction on the right whose attitude is let it rip. They just kill everybody. The people we kills will be dead, but the stock market will be better. The hot dog vendors will have sold the hot dogs. And that's really the important thing. And these are really dangerous people. Now, once again, just some guy on Twitter isn't necessarily a dangerous person, but some third-rate Fox News guy. I don't know who it is. Nobody knows who this is. It's like a middle-of-the-night guy. I mean, we're not talking Sean Hannity. We're talking about Jabroni. He basically said the cure is worse than the disease. We have to reopen the economy. And literally the next day, Trump was saying we can't let the cure be worse than the problem. He obviously was freaked out, once again, not by Rush Limbaugh, not by Sean Hannity, but by some nobody. Once again, these people are really dangerous. But I also think that they're not lying when they say they're quite okay with killing hundreds of thousands of people in order to reopen the economy. They mean it. And a couple of them are important. There's been reports that they have uh, influence with the White House, even though they don't necessarily work there. And the two people I'm interested specifically are Arthur Laffer and Stephen Moore. Now, these are both economists, quotation fingers. They kind of are, but I don't think most economists of either left or right take them seriously as economic thinkers. They're basically political journalists with economic degrees. I mean, there's a book called Nixon's Economy. It explains how, you know, in the context of an inflation, he talked the Secretary of the Treasury into influencing the Federal Reserve to increase the money supply, because in his mind, even in an inflationary context, if you increase the money supply, real GDP will increase in line with your increase of the money supply. And of course, that didn't work. I mean, this guy has been a disaster for 50 years. You know, you have Arthur Laffer talking about getting people back to work in the context where locking out a large fraction of the populace from their jobs is how you prevent the disease from spreading. It's a form of point missing. But what's interesting about both Moore and Laffer is that basically they're political conmen, and they've been political conmen for 30 years. And I say they're political conmen in that their arguments in favor of their policies don't exactly match up to what they want. Um, let me give you an example. Like Arthur Laffer is famous for supply-side economics. Now, supply-side economics is not that if you cut taxes, all other things being equal, you'll get economic growth. That's actually pretty obvious. All other things being equal. If you tax an activity less, you'll tend to get more of it. Now, that all other things being equal is really important, but just stay with that as a stylized fact. What Arthur Laffer argues is that if you cut taxes, you'll get so much more economic growth that you'll actually get more revenues because if you hadn't cut taxes. Say you cut income taxes 10%. Now, under what's called static accounting, you'll cut revenue 10%. However, if you cut taxes 10%, people will tend to work a little more. A few more of them will work. They'll tend to invest more. This will tend to produce more economic activity. So as a result of this 10% tax cut, the economy will be a little bigger. Now, all this new economic activity, that's going to be taxed too. It'll be taxed at a new low rate, but it would never have existed at all if not for the tax cut. So these are called feedback effects. Now, from the studies I've seen, these feedback effects are maybe like 25 or 30% of the lost revenue. 
So under static accounting, if you cut taxes by 10%, you'll cut revenue by 10%. But if you account for the feedback effects, instead of getting a 10% decline, you'll get like a 7% decline in the context of a bigger, slightly more prosperous economy. Now, it's perfectly reasonable to prefer an outcome where government revenues are 7% lower and the economy is bigger, which means that there's more wealth, there's more employment. It's perfectly reasonable to prefer that outcome. But that's not what Laffer says. It's not what the Moors say. They say if you cut taxes, instead of having revenue go down by 10% or 7%, it'll go up by like 2% or 3% or 5%. And that's just not true. Now, there is a point at which it becomes true. I think some economists say that, you know, at a 75% marginal tax rate, you actually lose revenue. Other economists will say it's in the high 50s. But whatever it is, it isn't the level we have now. But Moore and Laffer will say it is because it sounds easier, because it makes the ask easier. You're telling people, listen, we'll cut taxes, and not only will you get more economic growth, you don't even have to cut spending, because revenue isn't going to go down. You'll be fine. But the point is, they want the tax cuts. And if the revenue doesn't come online, they're okay with that too. Now, what they told you to get the tax cut, it was to get you to sign. But once you signed, you signed. Once you get the tax cut, you got the tax cut. It was a huge tax cut in Kansas, in the context of state government. And what it did was it blew a hole in the budget, a gigantic hole in the budget. And economic growth was unimpressive relative to bigger states. So everyone's like, hey, where's the growth? Where, where, what happened? In reality, Kansas, all those things being equal, is probably better off for purposes of economic growth with the tax cuts than without them. But the feedback effects are not so big that they're going to be transformative. And the budget problems are real. And Arthur Laffer's answer was, well, you know, you can't judge this by two years or three years or five years or 10 years. It's funny. There's, there's a general principle and it'll work. Don't worry about it. Now, Arthur Laffer really doesn't care if the Kansas budget is balanced in five years, if revenues have gone back to where they would have been, you know, without the tax cut. He got the tax cut. That's what he wanted. If you believed him, you're the sucker. Because once again, these guys are propagandists for smaller government, which would be fine. They're propagandists for lower taxes, which are fine. These are both reasonable positions to hold. But they do it by consistently misleading, playing strange and dishonest statistical games, basically lying. I mean, once again, when Arthur Laffer says these things, I assume that Arthur Laffer is smart enough to know that he's playing misleading games for purposes of public consumption. But they've gone from being misleading propagandists for tax cuts to becoming misleading propagandists for the coronavirus. And that's really bad. If you're pushing the president to basically abandon social distancing early, that could get hundreds of thousands of people killed. And once again, Moore and Laffer, they're not in the business of honestly weighing pros and cons. Because if you abandon social distancing, there's economic costs to having hundreds of thousands of people dying. And there's economic costs in even larger population of being critically ill. If you have 100 million people and you have 0.7% death rate, that's 700,000 people, but about four or 5% become critically ill. So a further 5 million people, that's going to have huge economic consequences because among other things, it's going to completely collapse the medical system and the emergency services. Never mind the cost it'll have on people who are caregivers for these very sick people. So the answer isn't, do we have economic costs or do we not have economic costs? We're screwed either way. But Laffer and Moore are in the business of giving one set of consequences, open up the economy, some people will die, but the economy will be saved, which is not true. The economy will still take a huge hit, versus don't open up the economy and you'll have Great Depression too. You have hysteria and panic relative to the economic hit we're taking, which is real and which will be big, but you're not weighing the economic consequences of abandoning social distancing early, which will also be huge. And these people have the ear of the president, and they are, by long habit, dishonest. 
they are people who don't weigh the consequences of their policies pro and con because they're in the business of making the sale. It probably makes them more attractive to Trump rather than less attractive because their salesman personalities are similar. But in the context of a disease that could kill hundreds of thousands of people, it makes them extremely dangerous. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, that we are now in a situation where reality is increasingly impossible to ignore. We don't know how it's going to turn out, but we know that we're all scared at this point. Whereas up until now, we had these sorts of ideas that since the parties are getting weaker and weaker and politicians are so goddamn unimpressive, well, let's turn politics into advertising, let's put it on TV, let's get salesmen to do it. Let's just organize this massive industrial-sized grift. And, you know, Republicans needed it. Democrats were offering people the great society. Does it matter if it works? No, not really. We'll just be paying trillions till the end of time or collapse, whichever comes first. And so Republicans got their version of that too, which was tax cuts. It's also a way of giving people money. It's also a way of saying, what are the consequences going to be? We'll never mind the consequences. This kind of TV salesmanship, turning politics into advertising, where you're selling the people on this great thing that you have to offer, and never mind the consequences. Now we're getting consequences from, you know, incompetent government. America would not be in the crisis it is now if government had been minimally more competent on issues of preparedness, or if we didn't get to this place where debt is pretty much 100% of GDP. This is a really bad situation in which to pile on this massive, massive crisis. If healthcare had been workable, not too crazily expensive and unpredictable, we might be in a better position to deal with this problem. But a generation of crises have been building that are now all revealed, and hopefully we dodge, and maybe it's going to be a catastrophe. Maybe we're going to overload the healthcare system. Maybe the economy is going to be dead for months, not for another three, four weeks. That's going to be catastrophic. These are not things that we have prepared for, but worse, the things we dealt with on an everyday basis from public discourse on TV to how do we deal with the debt, how we deal with spending, with government services, those things are catastrophic too. So there's a crisis that has to do with unusual events, stuff that we weren't prepared for. We didn't think this was ever going to happen. It was stupid on our part, but reasonable in a way. It's normal not to think that shocking events will come up. But also when it comes to ordinary events, also when it comes to the basic business of government, from elections to the government bureaucracy at all levels, this has been degenerating too. Now it's in everybody's faces. Why can't we get more masks? Why isn't the market helping us out? Oh, the FDA is involved in this as well because you got to approve medical devices. So it turns out that both on the Republican market side and on the Democrat government bureaucracy side, there is massive incompetence. Why did not the CDC see this coming? Why were they not prepared? Why did California close its mobile hospitals over the last couple of years? Before Gavin Newsom, what's his face? Governor Moonbeam, Jerry Brown. They were spending money on the rail, I'm told, but not on preparedness for a crisis. So in a million other places, you see this catastrophe brewing at the level of ordinary politics because to a large extent, we have outsourced politics to television. And now indeed, we do have an advertising president. Mr. Salesman, and he's not up to the job. Happily, as you said, there is enough competence around him and he's not suicidal or trying to destroy the nation, despite what our liberal friends might say or wish. But it's a very bad situation to be in. And, you know, we shouldn't spare Congress either. The incompetence over what the hell is the bill supposed to be that will 
save the economy for today, for next week, for the next couple of weeks, never mind what we're going to do for the rest of the year. Neither party is competent about these things. You do not have senators speaking to the nation seriously, although supposedly these 100 men and women are the elder statesmen of the nation. This is what it's like now. I hope to God that Tucker Carlson is who Trump is listening to. Tucker Carlson is not my hero, but frankly, I would rather him be president right now if it were at all a matter of choice. He flew down to Florida to talk to Trump and to tell him that this is going to be a, a real, real problem and he should get a handle on it. Hopefully, that's who he's listening to, not other Fox hosts like that lady that got fired because she was a little too crazy that the disease is a hoax, you know, big on Fox and on talk radio. And it's irresponsible, but worse, it means that we do not have resources to fall back on. We do not know who to listen to. On the liberal side, this would be the sort of thing where you see videos by incredibly insane celebrities who sing John Lennon's Imagine over Skype or what have you. These people are nutcases, but they're sheltered nutcases. And in a way, that's the problem with elite America. These are sheltered nutcases. They do not believe that they are accountable. They do not believe that wrath will ever come for them. In both cases, you see massive irresponsibility. Nobody was worrying about this problem, and you don't know how many are worrying about it now. You're going to have to rely on people risking their lives and dying as nurses and doctors. You're going to have to rely on people we've never heard of and never will hear of who are trying to figure out a new way to make the masks faster or to distribute them. And as you said, that's partly because elite media has been telling us we're the stupidest people on earth for trying to buy a few masks. No, we were right all along. The elites have been systematically lying because they didn't want to bother. And also, I mean... When people talk about badly we're doing, on one hand, we're doing badly. On the other hand, we're doing okay, not great, considering that we only started taking this seriously literally when Tom Hanks was diagnosed with coronavirus. That literally is the watershed moment. A basketball player got diagnosed with coronavirus and Tom Hanks got diagnosed with coronavirus. People were like, oh, this is real. I mean, there were individuals within American society who took it seriously, obviously. But within American society, those were the two events that set off a cascade where people said, oh, this is real. This is actually going to happen. Tucker Carlson is an interesting case because for the Rush Limbaugh's and Sean Hannity's of the world, the rise of Trump seems to have taught them a lesson. Ideology doesn't matter. Tribalism does. These were doctrinaire conservative guys. And if you weren't conservative and hadn't been conservative, if you'd failed this test in the past, you weren't really conservative. And Trump failed all those tests in the past, but their listeners liked them. So the lesson that Limbaugh and Hannity and I think a lot of talk radio guys got was that integrity is a luxury they can't afford. They can stick by their principles or they can stick with their audience, but not both. So the lesson they took was defend Trump at all costs, stand up for your audience at all costs. It doesn't matter what's true or what isn't. What matters is what side you're on. I mean, literally, it turned talk radio into an honor-shame culture. Whereas Tucker Carlson seems to have looked at the rise of Trump as being a time to say what he believes. The thing about Carlson versus Hannity and Limbaugh is they have completely different business models. Whereas Limbaugh and Hannity's business model is, okay, what can they do that won't get me on the wrong side of my audience? Carlson seems to be, all right, what's right? And I can talk my audience, or I can bring my audience what I think is right, and whatever happens, happens. Doesn't mean you have to agree with everything he says, doesn't mean you have to agree with every choice, but his program is, on a day-to-day -day level, much more about Tucker Carlson sharing what Tucker Carlson believes, rather than spinning some line of BS that will keep the public on their side, which means that he's actually useful in a way that Limbaugh, Limbaugh has covered himself in shame the last month.
were basically saying it's just a cold. And at one point he was saying, you know, they're saying it's 10 times more lethal. What does lethal mean? I don't know, Rush. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, just, but he was trying to evade the point because he didn't want to admit he was wrong. He was too arrogant to admit he was wrong. And once again, it's become an honor-shame culture. If you admit you're wrong, you've shown weakness towards the enemy. Whereas Tucker Carlson is still trying to run a right and wrong show, where it's better to be right than it is to be wrong. But putting aside the Hannity's and the Limbaugh's, who I think are perfectly happy to be wrong, as long as it serves to keep the audience on their side. There have been some political figures on the right who have given wretched political advice, I think from principle. Their opinion is that we should let the plague rip through the public. Now, they'll say something, oh, we should take care of old people. But they don't actually talk about what taking care of old people would mean because, honestly, they don't care. They're writing off the old people as an acceptable loss. But they're writing off the young people who would be sick. And if the medical system had been operational, they would live. They might have to be vetted for two or three days, but they would live. But within the context of a collapse system, they would die. They're writing off all those people for the economy, or at least their understanding of the economy. And I think that there is an underlying principle there. Whereas with Hannity and Limbaugh, there is no underlying principle. There's your side and there's my side. And the polarities might shift. It was serious one day and not serious the other day, depending on what side the political actors are on. These other people on the right, I think, actually mean what they say. It's easy to call them liars. I think they mean it. One of whom is the least of them, because he's a failed congressional candidate who's a journalist, Twitter. But you had Jesse Kelly, who said, you know, the show must go on. The economy just goes on. The economy is what's important. If there's no economy, there's nothing. So what he said literally was, if there were 10 nuclear bombs to go off in American cities, you still wouldn't shut things down. Now, as a matter of fact, it's wrong. I mean, once again, Boston shut down because of two scumbags with guns and pressure cooker bombs. But it revealed an underlying principle there, that in his mind, the economy comes first, the quarterly GDP ratings come first, and life exists to serve all these things. The second one would be, you know, Dennis Prager. Prager said, you know, in a war, there are casualties. And the thing is, if we think of the coronavirus like a war, well, people die in wars. And if people aren't dying, then it's not a war. Now, what is the purpose of this war? Is the purpose of this war to save lives or is the purpose of this war to minimize the hit on GDP? And for Dennis Prager, the purpose of this war is to minimize the hit of this and next quarter's GDP. And if, you know, abandoning social distancing is what it takes, that's what you do. And if it kills a bunch of people, you give them hero of the free market medals and you throw them in the ground. That's a war. War has casualties. They're heroes, whether they ask to be or not. You know, someone just drafted or drafting the old people in the sick to be heroes of the economy. But once again, I think he actually means it, which makes it much more horrible than if he was lying. And I think the last one was the lieutenant governor of Texas, who was on Tucker Carlson, who basically said, listen, I don't want America to be destroyed. And he said something that was really interesting. He said, I don't want my grandchildren to lose my country. How are five or six weeks of social distancing going to lose the country? Even if the economic hit is really bad, which it is, how are they going to lose the country? It's an interesting admission about some of the um, unarticulated premises behind this Kelly, Prager, Lieutenant Governor, also Glenn Beck perspective. First, America is business. And if businesses shut down, it's not America. If you're paying people to stay home, it's not America. If economic growth is declining, it's not America. So what's going on now is a profoundly un-American activity. You're reversing everything that America is supposed to be. And the second thing is, if the economy goes down a lot, it's setting up for a Democratic wipeout in November. And the Democrats won the presidency and the Democrats won overwhelming control of Congress. And then you really do lose America. This is dressed up in a lot of panic. Oh, my God, everyone's going to starve if we close retail sales for four or five weeks. Now, the, the hate is going to be real. Some of the stores will never reopen. Some of the workers will not be rehired at their old jobs. 
But the underlying fears are these two. One, everything that's happening goes against a certain, I don't want to say business class ideology, because I don't think most people in business actually share this idea, but some intellectuals do. It's a bizarre worship of business activity as such. Not one interest among many, but as the American interest. And people who have different interests don't actually have different interests. They just misunderstand their own interests. And the second is thinly disguised partisanship, that we have to minimize the hit on the economy because that'll minimize the hit on the Republicans because then the Democrats will transform the country, which might actually happen, except that you're talking about killing hundreds of thousands of people at minimum in the course of doing this. And that's a truly terrible admission. And once again, there was Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck says he's in the danger zone. over 60, but 56. And people die in their 30s and 40s of this. He said he would go out to work retail if that's what it meant to save the economy. He seemed to be doing it from a home studio. But let us assume his sincerity. It says a lot about this ideology, that they're willing to sacrifice so many people in order to prevent a two-quarter hit to GDP, especially since I think they're genuinely panicked. But they're willfully ignoring that their preferred policy would have a huge cost, not only in blood, which they're openly willing to pay, but it would have a huge cost in economic activity. It's not like you can reopen things in the midst of a pandemic and have the economy go on as before the pandemic hit, especially since the pandemic is going to hit that much harder this way. There's this ideology. I mean, the best that I can describe it as, it's the you built that job creator ideology among 2012 model Republicans, only it's become radicalized and it's escaped the lab. I mean, where Romney was talking about job creators and you built that, the theme of his campaign was cut taxes on job creators. And that's the most important thing you can do for you. And if you don't, really, you don't really understand your own interest. But even Romney's looking at the situation and Romney's like, this is serious. Social distancing is important. We need to model it. We need support for workers who have been locked out of their jobs. But the ideology survives. And like a virus, it has spread. And it has new hosts. And the hosts aren't Romney anymore. Romney seems to have had a relatively mild case, if you will. But you do have these people who have become these new hosts for this ideology. And not only that, the virus itself has become more virulent. And it's spread. And they're spreading it now. But the underlying premises are a radicalized version of the business class ideology that was visible eight years ago. Yeah, this is a really messed up problem, precisely because these people are essentially irresponsible, not just because they're giving bad advice, but they are not elected officials. They are not people trusted to give us advice on what to do. They're supposed to manage beliefs. They're supposed to massage your fantasies to reassure you when you're feeling weird. That's what TV does. And now, however, because it's a crisis, all of a sudden these people think that they are masters of propaganda, that they can change the American mind. They do not reflect the American mind. They cannot change the American mind. The very hysteria and the very fact that they've become caricatures of an ideology that was messed up to begin with reveals how uh, irresponsible this all is and that, you know, it's dying. This is not how things are going to work out. As I said, the model of the business Republican is going to be people like the guys behind the HEB stores in retail in Texas. That's what it means if you want to keep business going through a crisis. You got to prepare to take the epidemic seriously. Those people had a medical officer as part of the corporation, which is not usual in that line of business, but they wanted to be prepared. They made plans in advance. They weren't showboating and pretending that they are willing to die. Like, you know, this uh, lieutenant governor in Texas, he was saying that I'm willing to die for my grandchildren. And that's supposed to make it okay that you're not even saying, well, what are we talking about? 15, 20% of the population is old people who are really in danger. Are you insane? The answer to that question is yes, he is insane. 
Lieutenant Governor of Texas, I mean, I'm not an expert on the Texas state constitution, but Lieutenant Governor is a much more powerful office in Texas than it is in almost every other state. Most states, they're like the American vice president. They just spam yeah. tires. In Texas, it's a real job, or at least it was last time I checked, like 20 years ago. But the thing is, he is a fossil, not only in the sense of public opinion. Once again, 70-odd percent of the public supports social distancing. But you can see that the younger generation of Republican senators, especially like Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton, they recognize that this is an ideology of defeat and destruction and retreat. Because once again, these are the two politicians who have been like, hey, pay money to keep people home because we don't want them to be spreading the disease. Of the people in the Senate, they are the two people who learned from the experience of Romney that you built that job creator ideology as the public interest. Because once again, the businesses have legitimate public interests. They're not bad. In fact, the people involved are generally good. They're some of the most hardworking, most creative Americans out there. They're the salt of the earth. However, their interests are not the whole interest. And their interests taken the most extreme are not the public interest, which is what job creator and you built that ideology is built around. But you have Josh Hawley saying, you know, just give people money to stay home. Four weeks, five weeks, let people who are not involved in logistics and medicine just have them stay home. That'll save lives. And saving lives will ultimately be what's best for the economy. And you have Tom Cotton, really good speech in the Senate earlier this week, and Tom Cotton saying, we have to transition out of social distancing responsibly. There has to be resources online. There have to be protocols. We have to break the chains of transmission. And we can't just like open up the floodgates. It's got to be staged. We have to use public authority responsibly in order to bring the economy back online. Otherwise, now we you kill hundreds of thousands of people, you won't even do a very good job of bringing the economy online. We have to weigh multiple interests against each other. So once again, you have this ideology, which is toxic. It's destructive. It's single-minded. It's fanatical. And since it's poorly adapted to the environment that we're in, that means its advocates are becoming more and more hysterical and panicked. Where, once again, instead of talking about a one or two quarter decline in GDP, which is, let's say, like 20% by its annualized, that's more like 5% decline in production, that's relatively short-lived. You have a V-shaped recession. They're talking about the destruction of America. They're talking about the Great Depression. By the way, the Great Depression didn't hit its bottom until about three and a half years after it started. No particular reason to expect that this is one of those situations, but they're trying to elevate the stakes. They're trying to undercount the costs of their position because they're terrified that if we take the relatively significant but not Great Depression level hit now, it'll mean that their political enemies take power and they're willing to step on any number of dead bodies in order to prevent their political opponents from taking power. Because for them, what's the point of saving all these hundreds of thousands of lives if Nancy Pelosi gets to be speaker and Chuck Schumer gets to be majority leader and Joe Biden's president and they start passing all these laws? What's the point? You saved all these lives, but you've lost America. Now, if you articulate these underlying premises, it's monstrous. Yeah, and you see the problem with partisanship as such is at some point you end up saying that the party is more important than the country. The only reassuring thing is indeed that this madness is a sign of irrelevance, is a sign of obsolescence. As you said, the future of the party is people like Tom Cotton. And hopefully that's where people will look. Hopefully he will have more influence both over the party and with the public. People should listen. The right strategy for a business Republican is putting the common good first you're more Republican, you're more small business, then you should be helping small businesses not fire everybody by making sure that payroll will be made. You gotta make sure that that stuff happens. Do you want many millions of unemployed or do you want the government to pay for millions of small businesses to keep going? Those are your options now.
and uh, intelligent Republicans should go with the side of help business keep people employed, reassure the businesses, reassure the employers, reassure the employees. That's how you keep the America of 2019 ready for later in 2020 and 2021. Your commitment to the common good will be the test of what you do in the election. And I think another problem with the hysterical side of the right wing is the ignorance about government. I mean, at some level, if you commit to small government, you can't think seriously about how to use government well. You do not hear these people about what reforms do we need at the CDC? What reforms do we need at the FDA? If Republicans are the party of business, how are we going to help businesses save us in this crisis by producing all the equipment we are short of because we were so incompetent and unprepared? Well, government bureaucracy is a democratic incompetence. It's their problem, but Republicans are running the government now, so they're responsible. Deal with it. Talk about that intelligently. Prepare things. And a further problem with the right wing is people aren't serious enough about what does it mean to say we're shutting down the economy. Now we will restart it later. We got to keep it prepared to be restarted. Not a lot of people unemployed, not a lot of businesses destroyed. But it also means how do you identify where you open things and how. That will mean figuring out through testing and that will mean setting up federalist infrastructure to find out which parts of America are okay, which parts are not hit by a catastrophe of the size of New York City. That's where you will restart. Prepare for those things. Identify those places and make sure that you gradually spread out safely which parts of the country are fine. We're shutting down everything now because we're scared. And being scared is smart for the short term. It's not smart for the long term. For the long term, prepared is smart. And that means finding out who should be scared, who should stay in lockdown another week and another week and another week. Which parts, however, can prepare for opening up? This is the sort of politics that deals with business, that deals with government, that deals with telling the people. It's not forever. It's not even going to be an uncertain lockdown that we can't see the end of. We're beginning to prepare. Some parts will do better faster. And if they do better faster, they will help the other parts of the country so that they then can do better faster as well. Yeah, but all of these things call for the intelligent use of government resources. If you're going to um, get out of this, you need testing and tracing, which means you need testing facilities. And supposedly they just came up with a test that can tell you a positive in five minutes. That's really good. But you need to produce enough of them and they need to be in places where they can be used, where you go to your doctors or you go to a drive-up facility and you get tested. If you're going to do tracing, so that if one person has it and you will get a positive, you need to be able to trace who they've contacted so that they can self-isolate it. But at that point, you need someone to do tracing. You need a public bureaucracy or some kind of logistic organization that can trace all these people. And you also need masking because even though our public health authorities keep lying, at some point when we reopen, it would be smart for a while until we have better treatments and a vaccine that people in public places are masked. It should reduce the transmission no matter how much your public authorities lie about it, which means you need masks. You need resources to come online. You need public buy-in to protocols in order for this to happen. These are all actions that a responsible government needs to take. I mean, I'm pretty sure all of our listeners know who this guy is. But, you know, if you're not following Scott Godley on Twitter, you're missing out. You do have people who are working to intelligently move out of social distancing to something like a staged, not necessarily normalcy. It'll be a while before it's completely normalcy. But we won't be locked down to nearly this degree. But that takes responsibility. That takes thinking ahead. And the irony of the situation is that the voices on the right who have most loudly postured against panic and hysteria are themselves the most panicked and hysterical people. They're not only saying it's an economic apocalypse. They're saying we face a constrained choice between hundreds of thousands dying and maybe a much larger population being critically ill and some of them dying because the medical system has collapsed and the Great Depression. 
Then on top of that, they'll say, why are you so hysterical? It's just the flu. <laughs> I think it's telling me. So on the one hand, they are apocalyptic. In other words, for them, there's no monetary choice that allow us to save a lot of lives and allow us to have a significant but not catastrophic economic cost. We have the choice between catastrophic loss of life or catastrophic economic decline. Their actual policies would have both a catastrophic loss of life and a significant economic decline. But I wouldn't even spend so much time on them because once you said, you know, Glenn Beck used to be on Fox, but they fired him because they could see where it was going. Glenn Beck's messaging was not like Hannity, whereas Hannity knows how to dose his audience so they get what they want and tomorrow they come back for more. There was a uh, talk show host named Morton Downey Jr. in the 1980s, early 90s, and he had a talk show that was syndicated nationally. And his talk show was actually really exciting. I mean, it was loud. I mean, he would spit on people. He would call. He would yell and scream and holler. But the thing is, when your shows are such high intensity, your audience builds a tolerance to it, which means that you have to go higher. But there's a ceiling. I mean, you can't do human sacrifices on television, which means you have a shelf life. Whereas someone like Limbaugh or Hannity, who keep like a steady state, don't. And Roger Ailes, dead, bad guy, but he was a smart guy. He could see that Glenn Beck, one, was a public embarrassment, I mean, because he does have a screw loose. Two, he could see that the show was not going to last in the long term. At some point soon, six months, eight months, Glenn Beck's ratings are going to de either decline catastrophically or to keep his ratings up, he's going to do something so damaging that he wasn't worth it. So Ailes fired him. So I wouldn't spend so much time on Beck. Prager, I kind of like Prager. I, I don't want to disagree with Prager on everything. I wouldn't spend my time on him if someone else was president. Most Republicans have been okay on this. I mean, Mike DeWine's probably been better than anybody, Josh Hawley. If Mike Pence was president, I wouldn't worry about him listening to the, the lieutenant governor of Texas and going, oh my God, that's right. We do have to human sacrifice all the old people to prevent the economy from going down in the summer in order to prevent the Democrats. But Donald Trump might. So one of the reasons I spend as much time on them and thought on them is because given who's president, they might find a hearing and the consequences of them being listened to might be significant. Like what you said earlier was interesting and was right. A lot of politics is fantasy politics, wherein the consequences are never felt or they're felt by somebody else or they're felt so far in the future that it's not your problem. So if Arthur Laffer says cut taxes 10%, revenues go up, and then revenues don't go up, just borrow more money. The deficit goes up. Life goes on. And as Dick Cheney said, deficits don't matter. It was politically. Ideally, Arthur Laffer would want tax cuts and spending cuts. But if you're never going to get the spending cuts, you might as well get the tax cuts. That's like that's like second place. And once again, there's no real consequences to these politics, at least not to Arthur Laffer, at least not to most people. I mean, whatever negative consequences deficits will have, it's not going to happen today. I mean, I worry that it's going to happen someday, but it's probably not going to happen today. And it didn't happen 10 years ago, and it didn't happen 20 years ago. So even though what he said didn't exactly happen, there were no consequences. This has consequences. This is life and death. This is listening to people in a real-life situation who have lived their entire lives in a world of fantasy and make-believe and conning. Stephen Moore and Arthur Laffer are exactly the last people you would want to listen to in a public health emergency. Whoever thought that Roy Moore would be the second most destructive Republican Moore in America? But that's where, <laughs> that's where we are. Yeah, these people have got to be gotten rid of this entire crazy attitude on the right that says you don't really need to worry about this problem. This problem is not going to be your problem. And of course, the suggestion that actually it's metropolises that are going to be hit worst and metropolises vote Democrat. You know what? Maybe they have it coming. 
or maybe it's a democrat problem to deal with. Not when you're running the country. This is how partisanship works, but not when in power. When in power, you're responsible for everybody. That's the whole point of being in office. And the irresponsibility, the unwillingness and inability to ask the questions of prudence. What is right policy here? How are we going to time it? All of the questions that deal with using the power that you were elected to wield. You don't hear a lot of talk about that. We're talking about it. We want more people to be talking about it. Yuval Levine's new essay about the parts of the American response that have gone bad, but also the ones that have gone well at a level of bureaucracy and federalism to an extent. Very good essay. Our friends at American Mind, they do very good work telling people how to think about this stuff, to understand that it's not your money or your life. This is not the way we're living right now. We have to make both work, but with a priority for our fear, because it's real. There are voices like that. These are the voices that should be listened to more. These are the people that people should be paying attention, not the decrepit and obsolescent fantasy politics of, do I have a big audience? Am I doing that TV thing where people think it's kind of like a show? Not a big deal. You don't even have to pay that much attention to it. You're just kind of reassured. Sometimes you pay attention, sometimes it's just in the background. That's not what we're dealing with now. And this is a very bad model for political reasoning. It's a very bad model for judgment. And we're going to learn that the hard way if we don't learn it the right way. The right way means reality gets a say. It means that persuasion isn't that important. Even when you're right, persuasion doesn't always work. So don't rely on it that much. Worry more about the serious problems that serious people are dealing with. Figure out in different places what is happening and what can be done to improve it. These things will define American politics. It's the first time America has a crisis where a large number of people are going to die suddenly for reasons that have to do with policy. This is something that the fantasy land is running up against. I'm sick of people talking about it's like a flu and how many people die of the flu or indeed how many people die from any other disease or accident. This one is political. This one is a matter that we are all dealing with from the federal level down to small towns. Everybody understands that this is a political problem and it's a test of the American nation. That's why it matters. And the fact is there are hundreds of millions of people who are scared and worried. Many people dying, far many more sick and everybody knows it's going to get worse without knowing how much or how fast or for how long. This is now a political problem of national scope and it will define things. And partly it's because it's so new to us and so devastating suddenly. But partly it's because we have so many problems from the debt to running the bureaucracy to talking to the people about what America is supposed to be doing without turning it into a goddamn fantasy. All of these problems are now getting worse because of this new crisis, but they were older. They are just being revealed, just like these ideologies are revealed as the catastrophes and the caricatures they are. And the sooner people pay attention to that, the sooner they can look for more serious ways of thinking and acting about these things. And also, you do have governors who have been pretty responsible. You see a pattern where a lot of governors, politicians go through their mayor of Jaws phase, where they know there's a problem, but they're slow to react until it becomes real. And like DeSantis still hasn't closed the beaches in Florida. That's really bad. It's going to go against him in the long term. But one of the real divisions is people who kind of know that their ideologies in the last legs and people who understand that there will be future elections. Like one of the reasons why the lieutenant governor guy from Texas, Prager and Beck, are so hysterical and so willing to sacrifice so many lives is because in their minds, 2020 election is the only one that matters. If Democrats win, then no other victory will be able to retrieve it, which is, by the way, is what was being said in 2016. So you have to win every election. In, in a democracy, you can't win every election. Part of what makes it a democracy. 
But in their minds, their understanding of America is so brittle that if Democrats win power and they enact X number of policies, it won't be America anymore. They won't like their country anymore. And it's worth killing any number of people in order to prevent that from happening. Whereas what you do have is guys like Hawley and Cotton, who are younger, Prager, Beck, you know, Lieutenant Governor. For them, every election is the last shot. I mean, that was one of the things I didn't like about the Flight 93 election essay. You can't conduct democracy under those circumstances. If your defeat is that catastrophic, that it's utterly unacceptable, then the point isn't to win the election. The point is to cancel the election and then just hold power dictatorially and however long you can. That was the real implication of the essay. But more to the point, for Holly and for Cotton, you want to do the best that you can now, not necessarily because you'll be rewarded now, though all the other things being equal, better is better than worse, but because it'll be future elections. It'll still be our country, and we'll still love our country. And we want to do the best by our country now, and we want to be in a position to do the best by our country later. And that's one of the reasons why I think that both neoliberals, who are tend to be more free trade and tend to be more open immigration, and the national populists, who tend to be less free trade, more restrictions on immigration. Both sides of the right have united on the response because both the neoliberals and the national populists see a future for themselves where if you do better now, not only do those lives matter, but doing better now sets you up to do better later, where it's not the apocalypse. Whereas the supply side fossils, they don't see a future for themselves if there's defeat in November. And they don't see a future for themselves if it turns out that restrictive government policy and relief payments to keep people home work that undermines too much of their ideology. And for them, there is no tomorrow, because 1981 was a long time ago. Whereas I think both the right neoliberals and the national populists see a future for themselves. So you might as well do the right thing now. In fact, you should do the right thing now, because they don't see themselves as losing their country. Yeah, you're right. This is the changing of a political generation, which is not quite the same thing as who's young and who's old. It's more, as you said earlier, what were the lessons of 2016? What kind of political change is happening in this country? People who think they're going back to 2000 or to 1980 are nuts, but it's not going to be necessarily easy for them to learn that. The best thing would be for people to stop listening to them, for people to start listening to the people who are aware of the political changes underway and who take the situation right now as a question of what kind of future will America have? What is going to happen in the next couple of months? What is going to happen the next year? How are we going to prepare for whatever's next in this catastrophe? It might not be over. Indeed, the virus might be seasonal. This might become part of our new normalcy. It is not something we necessarily get a choice in and we don't even know as yet. Being serious about government working for the people, understanding what the common good requires, even if what the common good requires is a sacrifice of ideology, is very important. If you'd asked me a couple of months ago, I would not have recommended trillions of dollars thrown at the economy in various ways. Now it seems to me essential. I'm not sure I'm right, but it's possibly the thing to do. And since it's an urgent decision, everybody will have to make up their minds now. They think that's the way to go. It's not as important to hold on to your ideology as it is to take seriously just how bad the problem is and to understand what its real political character is. This is not a matter of where does the problem you're registering put you in ideological terms. The question is, the problem we're dealing with, what does it reveal about America? What are we getting right and where are we screwing up? Being realistic about those issues is the most important thing because it's what will sober us up. It's what gives you reasons for hope when you see that some people are doing very well and that, you know, it's not hitting everybody as hard. Some of it is just luck. Some of it is geography, but it's still good news. It's still something to give you hope. 
and also that we, we need to sober up about how bad the problems really are and really are getting. It is important to understand how many people are dying on a daily basis, the new cases that come up on a weekly basis. This is how we wake up to reality. It would have been better to be prepared. It is wise to prepare now, nevertheless, since this is not over. It's not just that we're in a crisis, it's that it's not going to go away by itself. We still need to use our political wits and therefore to look away from the madness and just to get Trump better advisors. Not just on the health side, but on the political side. What does it mean to run the country politically for the rest of the year? This is a very serious problem now. And once again, there are no cost-free solutions to this. Either you can have this be over quickly is itself the fantasy. In fact, it's a fantasy that you can somehow go through a door or pay a ticket and it can all be over. Like when Rick Santelli, I mean, I don't know why that Trish Reagan was fired. Well, he has got a job where basically he said, you know, it's just going to kill as many people as it kills. Just get it over with. And Rick Santelli was not talking about, you know, unemployment. He was talking about a one day decline in the stock market. Rick Santelli gave us the word Tea Party. So he's kind of an important guy in his own way, though the story of how the word Tea Party came around is not necessarily the most flattering to the Tea Party itself. But you know what he's saying is that the most important thing, if the sacrifices have to be made to the market, let's make those sacrifices fast. There's moral monstrosity on it. Because once again, we're talking about a disease that kills at least 0.7% of the people who get it, probably more. But that's within the context of a functional healthcare system. Within a dysfunctional healthcare system that collapses, it's a lot more than 0.7%. It might be 1.5%. It might be 2%. But it's a country of 300 million people. Figure it out. But what Rick Santelli was saying is, let's let all these people die. Then we can return to their old fantasy world. We can go back as if this never happened without ever actually having learned anything. We can go back to what's comfortable. But that's tempting to a certain mentality, trapped in the world before, and understands that either they will lose their relevance or they'll have to change. And they don't want to do either. So they're looking for ways to get back to the world before at whatever cost. Even though by trying to get to the world before, you'll pay the cost and still won't go back to that world. That fantasy can only exist in your brain. It can never exist in the world out there ever again. It's over. And the only question is, where do we move on? Yeah, we have to get our heads around two major issues. One of them is the problem of human sacrifices. We will have to make sacrifices because we're in a crisis. We will not be having to sacrifice people in order to satisfy a fantasy. You know, the most important reason to talk about these people, although there are many of them has-beens, and anyway, they'll lose their influence now. But it's important because what they reveal in a caricatural way, in an extreme way, is true of many, many millions of people in a more moderate way, which is indeed the hope that there's some kind of win-win solution here. There's some kind of way to make this go away, and we'll go back to our happy ends, because that's what happens. Every show ends with a happy end. But this is not a happy end situation. This is the sort of catastrophe that could be worse than tragedy. It should be a wake-up call. It should be understanding that you deal with reality or the catastrophe strikes. And then it gets worse. And you don't get a say in it. This is not a matter of how you look at it or how you spin it. This is a matter of what's going on. And what is true of the grotesque versions of this business ideology on the right is true to an extent of many, many other people who do not realize anything except if this goes on, there'll be some kind of change that is unpredictable and scary, and I don't want to be part of that world. I want some kind of reassurance that what I was comfortable with is going to go on. That is not the reassurance that you can have. The reassurance that you can have is a lot of people are doing things right now. A lot more people will be doing things right as they adapt to circumstances. That is hope. 
The suffering will make people smarter, stronger, more willing to help each other, less paralyzed, and less morally ugly, less selfish in certain ways, and less thoughtless in other ways. There's some good, even in this sort of evil, if people behave better, if they realize that they had bad habits and were unprepared, and they had better be more serious about these sorts of things later, so that they become less panicky, less hysterical, less ashamed of themselves for being hysterical or panicky or not realizing what's going to happen. That requires harsh wake-up calls, apparently. Well, we have that now. We don't quite know what politics will look like in the years ahead, but it's pretty sure that we'll be way more prepared for crisis because we'll take it much more seriously and therefore start to think about what our resources really are. And our resources aren't what are the numbers on GDP. We're going to have to get a more realistic grasp that starts with things we can comprehend from our own experience and get certain better habits of thinking about when do we have improvement. And this is indeed an entire other discussion about what are the good things we're looking for. Just like there's an entire discussion about what the hell is wrong with our elites and the way they respond to this crisis. But since we must conclude here, the thought I want to leave our audience with is this. Things are better when people behave well to each other. Now that takes a lot of prosperity, but it is not simply a matter of prosperity. It is a matter of helping out other people whom you take seriously in their moral claims on you. That is where confidence comes from, not from loneliness and abstract figures, not from the hope that comprehending some kind of jargon is safety. It's when you know that there are other people you can rely on by habit. I think that's exactly true. I mean, the false hope right now is that there's going to be a quick solution or that literally, I mean, especially with Santelli, that we could buy our way out of it. No, he wasn't looking to buy out of it with money. He was going to look to buy out of it with lives, but it's the same principle. If we're going to get out of it with a minimum of harm, there's no buying our way out of it. Now, some people are going to do more than others, but the only way out of this is everybody doing... I know it sounds like a cliche, because it doesn't sound all that heroic to not spread the disease to somebody. But that's saving lives. Now, other people are doing more. They're creating antiviral therapies that will save lives down the line. The public discussion of the diseases, it assumes that the pharmaceutical industry is going to be completely useless till they market a full vaccine in 12 to 18 months. It's probably not the case. There's probably going to be antiviral therapies that within the next three to five months do a lot to reduce the fatality rate of the disease. And there'll be protocols that'll probably reduce the spread of the disease, but we'll probably have to wear masks in public. And cheap, quick tests to make sure whenever there are new outbreaks that we can monitor them. New systems of information to figure out in real time what is the disease map in any given place. There are many things that will come from business, whether it's pharmaceuticals or IT or any other technological sector that will help. It's not that hard to do, but we've been caught by shock. But all of these things will get better since there are so many people working on it urgently. But the thing is, at that point, just the person on the line, the person who's been locked out of their job, not spreading the disease is something. And when you get unlocked from your job, wearing a mask in public spaces is something. It doesn't seem like a lot because it doesn't feel like the opening to saving private right. But it's saving lives. It's collaborative, especially in a situation where we've been trained not to be collaborative. On both sides, we've been taught that the other side is the enemy. You don't necessarily kill them, but you don't recognize that they have moral claims on you. A lot of people dying of heroin in rural areas, well, they're racist. That's what you get. Are there a lot of COVID cases in New York? Well, that's the density, urban living, you know, that they vote Democrat. That's what you get. And breaking those habits is going to be really important because one problem on the right was, you know, when they talked about common good economics, this was considered, wait, you mean socialism? You mean communism? Well, now we actually do have to act in the common good.
And once again, being stuck in your house doesn't feel like you are, but you are. Supporting these measures until we can responsibly transition to something else doesn't feel like it is, but it is. I don't want to lean too much on that because there's only so much you can ask the people when there's no progress. So, you know, people doing their part, they'll do more of their part for longer if everyone else is doing their part. In other words, if the government at every level is responsibly planning to transition out of social distancing as soon as possible, emphasis on both responsible and as soon as possible, if they see that, they're more likely to do their part. If they see that their public authorities are not sending missed signals, they're more likely to do their part. But that doesn't mean that either side of the equation is any less important. Public responsibility, not spreading disease, is extremely important. And public authorities acting not only in a responsible way, but in a prompt way, is also extremely important. And we're just not used to that. We're used to carping about the other side. We're used to just having things happen. And we're used to our talk never mattering. And that's not this situation right now. Every once in a while, I'll talk to somebody on Twitter, and it just seems not to have hit them that this is real, that the things that people do matter. Words matter because words will influence actions, but you can't simply word your way out of this. There's no slogan. There's no marketing. There's no rhetoric that can fix it. Now, rhetoric can move people in a better direction. It can move policy worse or better, but the point is policy gets worse or better. There's no rhetoric where you change somebody's opinions and then the problem goes away. No. Rhetoric influences action, and the reaction is good or bad, and they're just not used to the idea that action might have actual consequences. And the thing is, they're used to a world where you use words and you get what you want, but the words have to be connected to actions, or you don't get what you want. Yeah, exactly. Reality is making a big comeback in a scary way, and maybe it's the only way. How are you going to take your deeds, what you do seriously? Well, if what happens, irrespective of your deeds, is serious, then you will be serious. If you can speak your way into and out the fantasies, it's not going to work. Well, we're all going to see reality coming now, and let's hope that we deal with it best as we can expect under the circumstances. Pete, thanks a lot for joining me. I've been following what you had to say about this and thinking about the matter, but it's good to finally have a long, serious conversation where we articulate exactly what the hell has to stop, what the problem we are facing is, and why are people behaving and thinking this way. We'll have to do another conversation thinking about the perhaps the more optimistic or the more hopeful things, more future-looking. But first of all, we have to clear the path. First of all, we have to clear our minds, figure out why exactly is there so much madness that we got into this at the end of March, into this crisis, so unprepared and so unwilling to face up to the crisis or our unpreparedness, as though not seeing it means it's not there. Thanks a lot, Titus. Have a great day. All the best. Stay safe.